1: Hello, folks. Your host, Earl Brian here. Uh, look, I'm not going to belabor this uh, cold opening too much because uh, this was a great interview uh, with Mr. Charles Vogel. Charles is an expert in building communities and bringing people together and instilling that sense of belongingness in those communities. And uh, he has a very interesting take and perspective on what the word community means that he'll share uh, through this podcast. I think you're going to really love it. And I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you for being a part of uh, the Burden of Command community. Uh, Make sure uh, that you're helping grow that community uh, by sharing the show with folks that uh, you think could benefit from it. Uh, Keep those ratings and reviews coming. I really appreciate every single one of those. And, uh, you know, Anchor has that feature where you can drop a voice message Uh, So, you know, make use of that. I'd love to start including uh, some of your voice messages in these shows, maybe asking some questions, uh, making some comments about guests, that sort of thing. Uh, I really want this to be something where you, uh, the community, contributes to the show. With that, thank you very much and enjoy this episode with Charles Vogel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today, I've got a really great guest, Mr. Charles Vogel. Charles, thanks for joining us today.
0: It's delightful to be invited and to share this time with you.
1: Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And for the listeners, Charles is an award-winning author, speaker, and executive advisor. For the past decade, he his work has focused on advising leadership within global organizations, including... And you'll recognize a few of these uh, brands here, I do believe. Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, Airbnb, and Twitch. He is a regular guest lecturer at Yale School of Management and a founding member of the Google Vitality Lab, a collaborative partnership focused on the world's most pressing health and well-being challenges. He is also the author of the international bestseller, The Art of Community, and co-author, of the new book, and one we'll be talking about through the course of this podcast, Building Brand Communities, How Organizations Succeed by Creating Belonging. Charles, that is an impressive uh, list of of folks you've had the pleasure of working with there.
0: I'm glad you think so. It took more than two weeks to get to this place in my life where people with real responsibility and influence take me seriously. And I'm (laughs) delighted that it looks like what I was doing over the last 20 years seems relevant to somebody and hopefully, uh, people like you and me, Earl, we can make a difference. so The, the next generation is even better off than than our generation.
1: I, I 100% agree. And I tell you what, on that note, because I think you maybe uh, brushed up on uh, against it a little bit right there, uh, let me go ahead and start you off, where I start off all my guests, with one question. When you hear the phrase, burden of command, what does that mean to you? Well,
0: uh, Earl... Uh, I don't use the word command very much. I know you have a military background. And while I uh, sometimes work with people in the military and are veterans, um, I don't have military background. So I don't want to pretend that I have a real grasp of that term and understanding of it that you might. Uh, My knee jerk on that when we talk about the burden of command is those of us who take seriously that when we have a leadership role, be that formal or informal, far more than making sure that we look good or people talk about how great we are later The burden is making sure the people who are trusting us with their safety, with their time, with their opportunity are cared for. That they have a reason to believe trusting us with that opportunity and time or attention or risk is uh, worth giving to us in the time that we have it.
1: I love that. That is a fantastic definition of of, uh, burden of command. And, and, you know, again, as I pointed out to some of the past guests, this is. you know, somewhere around the 60th, 70th time I've asked that question, and I've gotten pretty much different answers every time, and I've loved them all. And, and uh, I love that one. That is a great way of looking at it. Um, you know, with that in mind, I want to read the title again of the book for, for listeners so they can uh, kind of keep track here. We're going to be primarily talking about uh, Building Brand Communities, How Organizations Succeed by Creating Belonging. Now, for my listeners, it's, it's no surprise that, uh, or it's no secret, I should say, that uh, what myself and my partner in our company, the Leadership Phalanx, we talk a lot about leadership, diversity, inclusion, and belonging as well. Mm-hmm. So I know what belonging means kind of from the DNI standpoint. From this brand community building standpoint, what does belonging mean?
0: Well, we refer to belonging as a qualitative idea. Uh, there is no one standard. What we hope is when someone in a leadership role, uh, in this particular book, we're speaking to people in leadership roles within organizations that can be for profit, nonprofit, political, social, f- spiritual, f- uh, social. Uh, we want members to believe that they understand that they share a value and at least one purpose that connects them to other members. Uh, you know, you talked about veterans, um, I hope, that when a group of um, military personnel go off to do something, that at some level they believe that everybody they're going off with shares at least one value, right? That, that value might be uh, keep everybody on our team safe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully there are others, but hopefully that's one of them. And then at least one purpose. And when we believe we have that, we have what we call for the purposes of our work camaraderie. Right. And it may be that, Earl, you and I go into rooms where we are with people who share at least one value and at least one purpose. Many, may, many Maybe many values and many purposes. Uh, but unless we have an experience where we understand that's what's going on in this room or this event, we're not going to feel that camaraderie, right? I'm not going to feel that level of belonging. We also say for the purposes of training people to be better at this, that members uh, typically want to believe, in this case, I hope accurately, they want to believe that other members see them for who they really are, which is to say not just some fictitious, best looking version of them presented, Mm -hmm. and then accept them for who they are. And for us in a leadership role to get there, we need to create environments where our members can believe that others have a chance to see who they really are and not some what we call avatared version of us, right? The the always successful, always articulate, always smart, always relevant Charles version, in in my case. Guess what, I don't always sound smart. Uh, My wife doesn't always think I'm brilliant and have the right thing to say. That's my actual life, right? And there. I want other people to know that there's that other version of me and then accept me for who I am. And so part of bringing people together where they have that belonging is creating venues where they can understand those shared values and purposes are in place, and they can reveal who they are and be accepted for who they are at some level.
1: I I absolutely love that. And, and yeah, and, and uh, I mean, you said a lot there, and, and I'm hoping that listeners were really paying attention because – uh, as I suspected, there's not a whole lot of difference between belonging in this type of environment and belonging, when we look at it from a DNI aspect uh, inside of our organizations, it sounds like maybe just for purposes of this, the brand building part is a little bit more outward facing towards customers and that versus inward facing towards your actual organization, right?
0: So we can think of it as outward facing, but for the purposes of our work, uh, that's not how we're relating to it. When we say brand, all we're referring to is an organization that's identifiable, that promises value. And for many brands, for many organizations, again, they could be for-profit, non-profit, political or social, uh, there's often a team inside, and that could be the executive team. That could be the sales team. It could be your research and development team. There's a group of people on the inside that the organization wants to be more deeply connected. And we know that when people feel connected within an organization, one term for that is called friendship, all kinds of really great stuff happens for the organization. Uh, Burnout goes down, absenteeism goes down, uh, accidents go down. And then, of course, recruiting and keeping top talent becomes much, much, much easier. And it's not rocket science. If top talent has friends at work, it's harder for your competitors to steal them. Uh, If people have someone at work that they feel comfortable asking for help, they get help instead of creating a monstrous disaster because they didn't have all the information they needed. One of my favorite things that we see happen when we see stronger connection within organizations is we find that when the formal communication system breaks down, right, someone doesn't know the person to ask for the permission or get the information, then there's an informal communication network that allows all kinds of resilience and all kinds of innovation to happen because your team members aren't waiting around to hear back and wondering why they're not hearing back. So just by investing in making your members, and that could be employees or colleagues or maybe your best customers connected, we see all kinds of fruit. And that's not just me. This has been written up in the Harvard Business Review and there's research coming out of the Yale School of Management that has documented this.
1: Well, you know, and I'll tell you, uh, another way we know that what, what Charles is saying is true is, uh, you know, back in the early stages of this podcast, I had a guest on here, uh, Colonel uh, Lee Ellis, who was a uh, prisoner at the Hanoi Hilton uh, during the Vietnam War, and he talked about everything that, that, that you just said as being why those men who were in that prison camp subjected to all the torture and things that they were going through for those uh, several years there, that's how they were able to make it through it because making everybody there feel as if they belonged, regardless of their branch, regardless of their color, uh, regardless of their background, everybody felt like they belonged to that community. It helped their mental capacity. It helped them be able to absorb those things. And, uh, you know, as, as Colonel Ellis and I were talking, you know, during that is, if it works, if it can work in the Vietnam jungles at the Hanoi Hilton, it can work in your organization today, right?
0: Well, as you know, I don't have any experience uh, keeping soldiers together in a situation so harrowing, I can't even imagine it. What I'm taking away from your share is that um, it wasn't a matter of just technically knowing what to do, mm-hmm. right? Technically knowing how communication work or technically knowing what needed to be done it was a matter of investing in the relationships of those men. And if a person who has led a, a group of people with more resilience than I'll probably ever see in my lifetime comes out telling people like you and me, this is an important thing that leaders need to invest in. Um, I would take them seriously.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, let's talk about the book a little bit. Uh, now, Early on in the book, you, you, uh, you actually reference your previous book, uh, The Art of Community. And in there, uh, you talk about seven principles used to bring people together. Uh, the first of those is boundary, the line between members and outsiders. Why is that important?
0: Well, Earl, as I said earlier... Um, when we bring people together, it's really important that they perceive, in this case, a- accurately, that they share some kind of value and some kind of purpose. Uh, hopefully several, but if you got one of each, you know, that, there's a start. And usually in the world, when we come together with people we want to be around and we're connected with, uh, not everybody in the world uh, values what we value, at least at the level we do. So when your family comes together for Thanksgiving, right, hopefully everybody who comes together that family meal values keeping the family safe, uh, supporting each other through tough times. And if somebody shows up and they don't share that value, they just don't care about your family, they don't want to be supportive. Maybe they don't even want to be friendly. Uh, They're probably a really lousy Thanksgiving guest. They might be a nice person. They might be a great person to play sports with later. They're a really lousy guest in being part of the community of your family at Thanksgiving. You know, you talked earlier with me about being a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, My guess is you know exactly how many people you want going with you doing things that Marines do when they don't care about the safety of the people walking with them. Right. When they don't share the purpose of whatever the mission is, even if that mission is just get better at being a Marine, right? Mm. You know exactly how much you want to keep them there. Uh, And another way to think of this is... When we're trying to build community and i define community in my work as a group of people who share mutual concern for one another so when you were in the marines when you felt really connected to the guys you were working with uh you believed and i hope you're always right earl that they cared about you if you were in trouble they would pull you out of whatever that trouble was and they'd come in and get you right right so you had community you can call it something else if you want but for the purposes of my work that's what we call it if you're trying to build that community um, either as a soldier in the military or even just a leader at work, or maybe even um, an informal leader in your community, uh, leading people to invest in your community to make it a safer and uh, cleaner place. It's very difficult to do that if you don't know who's in the community, right? In fact, that's one of the problems we see when someone says, well, everybody's inside. Well, if everybody's inside, then how do you invest in people, Mm -hmm. right? And let's be really clear, Earl. If someone's not in the community that you're investing in, that doesn't mean you treat them like a jerk. It doesn't mean you leave them to die. It doesn't mean they're bad people or you can't talk to them. Um, Hopefully when you were serving the Marines and there were a group of guys that you would community with and you knew if they ever needed help, you were coming. All you needed was one call, maybe not even a call, right? Right. That didn't mean everybody you met outside of that group of guys, you were a jerk to them or you tried to destroy them, right? Hopefully there were people in your neighborhood that you were still nice to. So the boundary is just a matter of helping us understand who are these people that we're investing in particularly who share a values and purpose and we can protect that boundary. So when those people come together to do what we're going to do to grow, to be who we want to be, uh, we can recognize who needs to not be here and uh, make sure they're not there. if it's important. And that could be Thanksgiving. If I come to your Thanksgiving, Earl, and all I want to do is sell books and tell people how smart I am, don't invite me back next time.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, and what you did there, you know, what you described there was exactly... Uh, most people who haven't served, they they always ask why uh, the different branches give each other so much grief, and that's really it. We we know that we're all on the same team. You don't have to tell us, but you know, if you're in the Navy, you're not in the Marines. If you're in the Air Force, you're not in the Navy, and you know, that, I think that's that kind of boundary there that you're talking about. Not uh, you know, not like a strict boundary, right? Yeah, but we like to give each other grief. It helps us build that sense of community for us. But we also understand that we're part of a larger community. You mm-hmm. would say the DOD as a whole, if you will, in America at the ultimate level, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, my you know my work is about building people in leadership roles who want to be better at this. And I think it's really unimportant that we get really important at parsing stuff like that's not the job. Our job is to help people come together and and grow. Right. Uh, But one ways we could describe that is what we call segmentation. So, uh, you know, the Marines is a segment of the DoD, right? And the DoD is a segment of the U.S. government. And the U.S. government is a segment of all Americans everywhere. And Americans (laughs) everywhere are a segment of all people on the planet. And actually, when we look at the maturity of a community, uh, one of the things we can look at is how broad is the concern of the leadership? So hopefully the commander of the Marines doesn't only care about Marines. Right. And if that person does, they're a really lousy commander because the Marines live in a world where there's a lot of other people in the DOD and a lot of other Americans. Mm-hmm. And hopefully when we have someone who's leading the whole country, they don't only care about Americans. I mean, Earl, you as a veteran know how important it is to uh, American soldiers that those allies show up when you need them right. with whatever they got. Right. And the last thing you want to hear is nobody's coming for you. Right. We want someone leading the whole country to be concerned with people far beyond just Americans. And that's a sign of maturity. Now obviously people in America have different privileges, there's different investments, right? But that doesn't mean we say, well, to help everybody else. So we call those segments. So and we can recognize what segment we're investing in and what segment we're a part of. And you mentioned earlier in this conversation, Earl, uh, when there were soldiers from different branches in Hanoi Hilton, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they survive is not saying oh, look you know we're looking out for marines and we're looking out for navy and we're looking for out for air first and the rest of you you know go to hell no no we're all in this together yeah we have segments but at the end of the day we're still a community
1: and and what i love about this what you said there and and uh, you know kind of tying it back is is looking at it from the opposite perspective and i'll go back to the handoy hilton and and why this belonging piece is is so important when you're when you're divided the uh, the the opponent, if you will, I don't want to say enemy because we're talking more about corporate than than military here. So the opponent or or your adversary, however you want to look at that, they can use that against you. and that's actually what they they ran into the the Vietnamese because they knew of the racial tensions in the US at the time. There were uh, a couple of African American uh, officers, pilot officers that got shot down and were at the Hanoi Hilton. And they tried to use that racial tension against the, the prisoners there, but because of that sense of belonging that had been instilled, they were ineffective at doing so. And so to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, this level of belonging, this being able to identify members and outsiders effectively, it helps organizations build that resilience level, right? Right.
0: Absolutely. I, I would be shocked if someone tried to talk you and me out of, that, out of that what you just said at all. I think they'd be ridiculous. And what I love hearing about the story is while there was and still is racial tension in this country, uh, these soldiers understood uh, as a community that wasn't reason to leave someone behind right. Right, or abandon them. Outstanding. And they demonstrated resilience that you and I wish we could find everywhere. 100%. 100%.
1: So the second principle you talk about here is initiation, the activities that mark a new member. Why is that important for a community?
0: Well, there's a number of things that make this important, Earl. The first is when someone is visiting a community, it's very important that they're given room to visit. And just because they showed up and joined a barbecue or went on a hike or anything that they're not wondering, am I a member now? because I just wanted to visit and see if I wanted to be part of this and whatnot, right? And if you don't have an initiation, then there's no clear boundary where they know, oh, I'm still a visitor. The second one is if we want members to feel connected and there's no initiation, then there is this confusion at what point they really are a member when they want to be a member. And if we don't give it to them, then they start making stuff up, which isn't all bad, but we're now giving up that opportunity in a leadership role to give that to them. And they wonder, well, gee, when I got invited to that barbecue on Sunday that wasn't promoted, does that mean does that mean I'm a member now? Or, gee, when I took on this role that I said I would organize the next event, am I a member now? And we've all been part of some kind of group where we wondered, um, am I really part of it now or am I still just kind of the person who's hanging out here? And when we talk about initiation, Earl, it would be great if they're involved and Maybe heavily ritualized and um, formalized with tokens and signs. I mean, that's that'd be great, but it doesn't need to be that big a deal. It can be simply a matter of some what we call elders, people who are more senior in the community, um, acknowledging out loud that a visitor has done whatever they need to do, which might be, you know, show up five times and and commit to some kind of purpose, which could be become better at being fathers, whatever it is. And then acknowledging, so we're acknowledging you're a member now. And uh, obviously with different communities, we're gonna see different levels of initiations, but we really wanna give members a sense that after today, other members know that you're a real member. I like it. Um, and I know that the military, you probably have many, 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 many examples of initiations of all kinds that were really meaningful. The people who are serving and putting their life at risk.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, it's 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 interesting here because you know, I mean, I don't uh, I don't really sugarcoat much about uh, about the Marine Corps. Uh, but if you ever get a chance uh, to go, like everybody talks about the graduation ceremonies, uh, you know, being in California, if you ever get a chance to get down to San Diego and witness something uh, they call the Eagle Globe and Anchor ceremony, it's everything you're just talking about, right? It's it's the first time. Uh, So in the Marines, you're not a Marine until this point. You're a recruit. The purpose of this ceremony is it's the first time you are giving the Eagle Globe and Anchor, which is the kind of infamous Marine Corps logo. And they do this whole ceremony, and Lee Greenwood is blaring over the speakers, uh, God bless the USA, and your drill instructors, who have just spent the last 13 weeks kicking you in the guts every chance that they get, they're going down the line handing out these Eagle Globe and anchors for the first time. And you have 70 freshly minted Marines misty eyed and just kind of a ball of tears because of that sense of accomplishment of being, uh, of having made it and being welcomed into the group. I mean, it is an initiation ritual just exactly as what you're talking about here. Mm
0: -hmm. So that's a fantastic example of a, of a storied initiation with a fantastic token, with the, the pin, mm-hmm. and in this case given by elders. What I want uh, your listeners to understand is we don't need to create something that grand right. for the communities we, we have, even if that's just a volunteer community that's picking up garbage at the local park, right? We can just acknowledge you're now a member of the group and b- by virtue of that, this is the commitment that you have. You know, We meet once a month and we share a barbecue like, mm-hmm. good enough. But we want to be able to give that to them.
1: Yeah. No, and I agree. Uh I've got a <laughs> I've got a collection of pens. I used to do four H judging at the Indiana uh state fair. I got a group of pens and that's all they did. I mean, nobody came up like uh, patted me on the back, said thank you. They just said, Hey, welcome here. Here's your pin. But I felt and I still feel like I'm a part of that community right now every time I look at those pens. Just a small small token. Um And that brings me to number three, uh, rituals, the things we do that have meaning. So how does that play into community building?
0: Well, Earl, we live in an unfortunate time where we have lost many of the rituals in our culture that mark how we are changing and maturing. And One of the reasons is that Americans are largely running away from their home faith traditions. Um, Unfortunately, they're often doing it for very good reasons. What it also means is they're no longer participating communities that have these rituals that acknowledge how we change over time, especially with people who have known us for a long time and see how we're changing. And so one of the ways that we can make any given community stronger is we can offer the rituals that acknowledge how members are changing. You know, One of the ways we could describe the ritual that you described of Marines finishing their training and becoming Marines is they change from being an aspirational Marine, someone who said that they thought they could be a Marine, to being an actual Marine. There's a transition there. And they'll never go back. There will never be a time where they will not have been a Marine. And that's one of the reasons why they're becoming misty-eyed, is they notice in the ritual that they are now different. And other people are acknowledging That they're not different. You know, the Marines could do it where you've bashed the last test, maybe it's a PT test, and someone says, boom, okay, Earl, you're a Marine. And, uh, you know, show up at 8 a.m. on Monday and you guys will start doing what Marines do. That's how they could handle it, but they don't. And they don't because they know that ritual means something. And you're taught, you know, you're moved by it years and years later. When we can recognize in a leadership role the power of these rituals, then we can offer them to our members so that they can feel more connected to one another. And uh, as I, again, just like the initiation ritual, it doesn't need to be that involved. Uh, And people in our communities are changing all the time. People are going from students to teachers. They're going from um, probably weaker to stronger. They're going to disconnected to connected. Um, You know, I'm working with uh, a group of, Military people now and one of the transitions that is missing ritual is coming back uh, to the country from theater of war hmm There's no ritual that says you've been doing these things Which you are not willing to share with your family because you don't want to have those conversations and now you're going back to or you're Starting a new civilian life at least for several months and all they've got right now is getting off of a plane. Yep, and there's this hunger for a ritual that says you're leaving that part of you overseas and you're entering a life where you're going to go to basketball games to watch your kids, you know, play in a gymnasium. And those are very different lives. Mm-hmm. They're hungry for a ritual. And that's just an example of one of the rituals that we know we can play with and see how will that help people who want to be connected and care about each other demonstrate that.
1: Mm. Well, first of all, let me thank you for that last part because that is uh, very important work. And and I believe that what you just identified there is one of the key factors that uh, uh, that contributes to the veteran suicide epidemic is not Mm -hmm. having that transitional ritual. So thank you for, thank you for doing that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let me just share uh, in time, I'm working with a gentleman named Eric Paul, who last year uh, uh, retired from the uh, U.S. Army Special Forces. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, in his service, and then after he retired, recognized the pain that he felt and the pain he saw in his peers in that whole process after uh, so many years of war, and then the transition of coming home and taking care of family. And he was also aware of the suicidal um, trends among Army Special Forces. So he created an organization called Warriors Breaking Bread. And he reached out to me and he said, Charles, one of the things that I'm aware that we're missing, or rather we could use a lot more of, is community. Uh, we have a lot of community when we're in theater. Uh, he knows that people watch his back, and goodness knows he's watching their back. He comes back to the United States and they don't have that support, that community support as they did there. And so one of the ways that we do that is we host dinners. Our pilot was in Seattle. We host dinners for active uh, military and then some veterans to come together and share long meals together that are ritualized. The meals are not there to eat steak. Uh, Everybody can eat steak and they don't eat us. The meals are there to create a container where relationships will forge that will lead these military personnel to support each other in the lives they're trying to lead, they want to be successful in after that chapter in their life. Unfortunately, with COVID, we can't host steak dinners in restaurants because uh, it's unsafe and we don't right. want to put families at risk. And so we're on hiatus right now. Uh, we're looking forward to getting that program started as soon as possible, as soon as that's safe for the families we want to invite in. So it's called Warriors Breaking Bread, and Eric Paul is the founder and executive director.
1: That That is outstanding. I mean, uh, well, and it kind of a little bit ties into... Uh, number four temple a place set aside to find our community I mean I, I'm sure you're gonna have a, a a little bit more in depth explanation, but in in some ways that steak dinner is the temple right
0: absolutely in this context, all a temple is is a space set aside to meet uh, people in our community uh, and I think many many communities have this by default that could be somebody's backyard right that could be your favorite bar uh The reason we have to bring this up and articulate it is I noticed that a lot of people in leadership roles, both formal and informal, don't recognize the critical importance of having a space is. And it doesn't need to be a space that you only use for that. Uh, You know, if you have someone's backyard and every month there's a barbecue there and this group of people that are really important to you arrive, obviously that backyard can be used for other things the rest of the month, right? Right. And maybe you can even use a different backyard some months. But this idea is that you need to recognize the space is what we call sacred and what we mean by sacred is set aside and a space a space can be sacred for a temporary amount of time so earl i've never been to your home for thanksgiving you haven't invited me yet my guess is when i come to thanksgiving it's a sacred space in your family like and the way i know that or i will know that when you do invite me is when i'm there i'm probably going to hear conversations shared there that i'm not going to hear elsewhere and there are probably things that you and i can talk about over drinks in a dark place hanging out that i better not say at thanksgiving Mm -hmm. right that doesn't mean i'm a bad person doesn't mean i can't say them to you but not at thanksgiving charles right (laughs) why it's because thanksgiving is sacred it's a sacred gathering of your family with shared values and purpose in this case to take care of one another and be connected hopefully through an entire life of challenges and successes and failures so we can Notice what are the spaces that are important to us as a community, and/or and, do we need to make them? Uh, many times I talk to schools. You know, teachers are so fantastic; they're literally on the front lines of the loneliness epidemic we're all living in. Right. And they see the results, and they are the ones that talk to me anyway. Are so invested in doing the best they can with the resources they can in helping the next generation learn how to connect and be connected and have the support they need to have success in the next generation. And I remember one teacher came up to me after I'd led a workshop and he said to me, oh my goodness, I see now what we've been missing. We encourage students to create these groups, these special interest groups, and we don't give them space. We just say, oh yeah, just find an empty room and use it You know, at 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. They don't have a space to go to that they can close the door that they know at this time, this space is ours and it's safe. This is where I know I can find my group when I want to find them. And I didn't get to talk to him to find out how it made a difference, but he could see right away, we're not offering them sacred space. And it's a huge missing what we're trying to accomplish.
1: Mm. And and it's those little things, especially like with a a pandemic like this, that, that, that we don't necessarily think about the importance of until they're gone, right? Uh, I mean, like you just said, we we. Well, win. I think
0: about them, Earl. <laughs>
1: well, you do, yeah. I mean, yeah. But uh, okay.
0: I, I can't the, speak to you. <laughs> uh, let me let me say
1: the average. Well, I think what I'm saying is like we, we take them for granted, right? They're there. We're like like you mentioned, schools, right? You know, chess club. That that's just kind of a thing, right? Most schools have a chess club. It, it, it's there, right? And I think
0: you're right, Earl. I I would describe it a little bit differently. Go ahead. I would say that because we're so poorly trained on how to bring people together. In meaningful ways, and that's why, by the way, one reason at least we have an epidemic of loneliness, which is well written about. Mm-hmm. In fact, former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote a whole book about the loneliness and its uh, medical and health implications on our country. He calls it an epidemic. Uh, I think one of the things that's going on is we can't, as a culture, distinguish what's going on and what are the elements that are making this possible. Mm-hmm so i think that many people they might have this great story about a family member becoming a marine and being there at the ceremony but they don't distinguish oh that's an initiation ritual and the reason why marines get misty-eyed is because a group of people who care about them their families and now these elders in the marines are acknowledging you are maturing you have matured into being a marine well We're- gee whiz or we could do that in all kinds of areas of life we don't wait till someone becomes a marine i mean please do it for marines yeah but how about when you become a father How about you become an uncle? How about when you buy a new home? How about when you get a new job? How about when you lose the job and you're learning to support your family without the job you were depending on? Yes. There's all kinds of areas that the people we love, three of them, can come together and say, we care about you and we see that you're maturing, and you're changing, and we're here for you.
1: Mm. We need to
0: distinguish all the principles I talk about. You you mentioned there are seven in the first book that we make them easy to understand for, for learning. And then in the newest book, when, I, when I'm speaking to people in leadership roles and organizations, it goes even deeper. Uh, we wanna know who are the elders. Uh, oh, elders meaning people who have more understanding about the values and teach about them so that younger people, be they Marines or otherwise, can say, um, I wanna learn about this and I wanna learn about it from you.
1: I love it, yeah.
0: So Earl, when you were a Marine, did it make a difference from you that there were people who had more skills more perspective, more wisdom, more experience, available to you to teach you to be a better Marine? 100%. And if they had not been available, would you have had a harder time being a Marine? Uh, Without a doubt. Right. So obviously those were critical questions. The reason I bring it up, Earl, and, and you gave the answers that reflect a real Marine, are, well, let's make sure in the rest of our lives, the people we want to help mature have access to the elders that'll help them just like you had Marines to help you mature as a
1: Marine. Right. Absolutely. No, I love it. I love it. And uh, so, yeah, let me, let me just go ahead here. Cause we spend a good chunk of time talking about these and, and fantastic. Uh, the, these principles that they are only a few pages in and, and only make up a very short, uh, uh, very short and small piece of the book Building Brand Communities, How Organizations Succeed by Creating Belonging. And and I encourage everybody listening, pick up a copy of this book. It is outstanding. Uh, you know, if, if you're doing anything and you want to accomplish anything uh, meaningful, this is a book that's going to help you do it. Uh, so I don't want to belabor the rest of those principles. I, I think we'll leave the last uh, three uh, kind of dangling there for people to go... Uh, incentivized to go by. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. <laughs> there you go. So what I love about the rest of this book, and we only have a little bit of time to talk about the rest of it is you, you do a good job of tying this community in with, uh, helping organizations make decisions. And one of the stories that I loved in here, uh, cause you know, I'm not big on Twitch. Um, Honestly, uh, the, the only show that I really watch that's on Twitch is a show called Critical Role. Uh is where my nerd side comes out. It, it, it's really got me uh, kind of back into Dungeons and & Dragons and that fantasy realm. But that's my Twitch experience. But you share a story in here when Twitch, they were making a critical change about limiting their content, to I think, down to just two hours. And there was kind of a revolt uh, from their community uh, in a particular segment of that community right
0: well the story i think you're sharing about is that twitch was always trying to find out how to make their platform more appropriate for their users right and they ran into this problem where they have literally hundreds of millions of users mm-hmm. and they made a change that their data team told them was a good change by reviewing how the bulk of twitch users use the platform, which is to say how, how many videos they watched, how long are the videos they watched. And they noticed that the short videos got far more views than longer videos. And they said, well, that's fine. What we'll do is we'll just restrict how long a video can be, and that'll help encourage the kind of videos that our users want to watch. I'm sure there was more to it, but this is how it was explained to me. Right. And so looking at the data, that seemed like a good change, and they made the change. Uh, Literally within hours, I think it was within three hours, one of the most prominent Twitch broadcasters, who's what they call a speedrunner, um, contacted uh, Marcus Graham, who at the time was um, a senior executive w- w- with con- uh, regarding the content creators, and said, "You know, speedrunners participate in Twitch by recording An entire play of a game which could take hours and hours and hours to show how quickly they can complete a whole game but it takes more than two hours and if you're not allowing us to record any videos that document our accomplishments there's literally no reason for us to stay on twitch now speedrunners constituted I believe five percent of the twitch audience Uh, so they were a very very small minority but if you do some quick math it was more than the population of Denver and customers that, mm. in a moment, Twitch had made themselves irrelevant to. And they know every day when they wake up, there are competitors who would love to steal their customers. Stealing millions of them overnight is a fantasy. And Twitch had made a decision that just gave their, com- cus- their competitors millions of customers because, quite frankly, Twitch made a stupid decision. Mm. They figured out their error of their ways. They got in the engineering team, and they resolved it. Not, not rocket science, right? But what hung in the air was, how did we make a decision that would alienate millions of customers that we didn't want to alienate? What is going on there? And one of the things that um, Marcus explained to me was as the company had grown up organically, uh, the people at Twitch are gamers and they're on the platform and they could track who's doing what and what do they want from it and what would make it better. But this showed them that they had passed that mark where they could just organically figuring out what do people want. And the next mistake might be even bigger. So that's what taught them that even though they're a digital company with a digital product, with hundreds of millions of customers contacting them digitally, they learned they needed to physically fly in their content creators to their headquarters in San Francisco and spend days with them sitting in the same room, having fun conversations, right? Nobody wants to you know, get bored, right. but build those relationships in person so that they can have a sense of what's really going on and what's the real need there. And what I love about that is if there was ever a company in the history of commerce that you'd think could do everything digitally, it would be a company owned by Amazon that has 200 million customers logging on digitally, right? And Twitch can buy whatever technology they want and need to make that work. Mm-hmm. Even they realize, no, 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 no. We need to get people in a room together at whatever cost, flying them in from time zones to make our, to make our business work. And sure enough to this day, Twitch hosts two what they call Twitch cons on different continents where tens of thousands of Twitchers, uh, are pilgrimage to now, tens of thousands doesn't sound like a lot for a company that has hundreds of millions of members, right? Right. It's important enough that they do it. And I've met the team that hosts it and, Uh, They know that of those 200 million, a fairly small percentage, actually less than 1%, are really critical to making sure Twitch has the content that the other tens of millions of members want to see. So Twitch understands. They have to invest in building community with those content makers. They also have a team, and I've met Aaron who runs that team, that supports 40 cities with groups, they call them, in each city of Twitch fans who gather at physical events. Again, it's a digital company, the digital platform, and they got 40 cities hosting events throughout the year. In COVID, I don't know how that's changed, but they were doing it pre-COVID. And the reason I like to bring up this example, Earl, is I meet people with much smaller companies, with much smaller aspirations, and they're convinced they can do everything in a chat room or they can do everything in, a, in a, um, an online platform where people click in to enter or through video? And the answer is no, no, you can't. Or at least you're leaving a lot of value on the floor in your connections to your customers, your connections to your team. And the reason we know is a multi-billion dollar company owned by Amazon, they can't do it. Do you think you're gonna do better?
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, and that is, that's a good point and it's so powerful. And like you said, like, you know, sure, right now with COVID, that's kind of the only option that we have. So there's probably a lot of organizations right now that are building their community building strategies in a COVID world that is probably not going to succeed all that well once COVID gets under control and people crave, probably more than ever are going to be craving that in-person community, I want to see somebody, I want to feel body heat of 500 people stuffed into the same room that I would have complained about a year ago, right? You know, I don't
0: know exactly what type of what we call shared events uh, different people are going to want. If you're complaining about it a year ago, then maybe you won't like it two years from now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but what you and I can acknowledge, Earl, is there's a lot of loneliness. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hunger for connection. And we're in an epidemic. And uh, people who are listening to us right now, they're still listening to us because they want to be better at bringing people together, even if that's just people in your family. I hope it's more than people in your family, but your family counts. There are ways we can become better at making the time we're together better. And one of the things I want to bring up here, because I notice it's missing in our culture, is what I call the distinction invitation. Uh, Someone uh, came to an event I was at and they're they're a relative of a friend of mine, and so she got a chance to talk to a community expert. She came up to me and said, you know, I moved to San Francisco recently, and uh, I wanted to build community in my neighborhood, so I hosted a brunch. Nobody came. Charles, community expert, how can I build community in my neighborhood if nobody's coming to my brunch? And of course, Earl, I don't know. There's so many things in the situation I don't know. I I don't pretend that I do know. But I know what questions I want answered. So I said, how many people did you invite? There was a long pause. She looked past my left shoulder and then she said, I posted it on social media. Mm -hmm. Well, Earl, she invited nobody and nobody showed up. She had a hundred percent (laughs) yield, right? The reason I bring it up is she was totally confused that she didn't send out any invitations. And for the purposes of community building, an invitation means that somebody knows that somebody else, in this case, the host cares that they attend. If nobody knows that anybody cares if they attend, it's not an invitation, it's an announcement. By Mm. the way, nothing wrong with announcements. We get announcements, make announcements, fine. But just don't confuse them with invitations. We live in a lonely Mm. era, Earl. Uh, At least half Americans say they're lonely. Uh, You know that among veterans and civilians, we're at record level suicide. Yep. Everybody listening right now can't invite someone to spend time doing something phone call counts, a walk outside in your neighborhood counts, Uh, sharing a meal in time of COVID with appropriate precautions counts. We can just make invitations. And if you're feeling lonely and you know people are lonely, the first place we can start is just asking what invitations are we making? And by the way, Earl, I I do want to include this, you know, wisdom on top of just the idea of recognizing invitations. Invitations are so powerful, Earl. First of all, most people don't realize how powerful they are. Actually, many people don't even recognize them for what they are. They're so powerful that it almost doesn't matter if people accept them. If I invite you, Earl, to share pizza at my house here in Oakland, right? And we can talk about serving veterans together, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know if you'll come because I'm far away. Maybe you don't like me. I don't know. Or don't (laughs) like me enough to come to Oakland, eat pizza. I don't know. But when I invite you, you're going to get two pieces of data. The first one is you're gonna have evidence that somebody in the world thinks you deserve being connected, in this case, with me. You may always say no, because you live far away and maybe you don't like me, I don't know. But you're gonna have evidence that somebody in the world thinks you should be connected. The second thing that's gonna happen is even if you do say no because you live far away, is you're going to believe that you know somebody who has the power to bring people together. And indeed you do. And maybe you're always going to be saying no because you have sick parents and they need your attention and you just can't get away to eat pizza with somebody. Like maybe that's what's going on. You're still gonna be left with that evidence. And notice on my my side, if I invite a hundred people to have pizza and 96 of them are like Earl and they have sick family members to take care of and they're never gonna say yes. First of all, I've put all that data out there that other people can be connected. And if four of those people say yes, I'm gonna have a fantastic evening of pizza with five of us talking late in the evening. Mm -hmm. And nobody cares that 96 people said no. Right? Yep. That's the power of invitations, Earl. And everybody listening, including you and me, can start using that today.
1: Mm. Well, you know, and again, i tell you, just kind of timing, right? Uh, Again, how I know what Charles just said is true is, uh, and I don't know if you've seen this story or not, because it's really started making its rounds on on media and social media over the last couple of days. Uh, But there's this great story uh of a Delta flight crew um writing handwritten thank you notes to each of the passengers and what was great is in the note and 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 these were legitimately like handwritten you know there were just two or three sentences but it had each passenger's name and it had a crew member's name on it but it acknowledged it, it acknowledged the pandemic it acknowledged the uh the stress and anxiety that people are experiencing with flying now. And it was a deep, heartfelt thank you for choosing to fly with Delta. And all of the passengers that they've interviewed for all the various articles have essentially became, as they say, have essentially became customers for life. Now, I think we both know that, you know, a lost piece of luggage or a bad experience in the future is going to maybe erase some of that goodwill. But right now, that crew did a fantastic thing by just taking some time during the flight to write these handwritten things because of that connection piece. You know, the, 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 the passengers felt connected to that crew for the instant, and it generated so much goodwill. Like, Delta couldn't have spent enough money to get this type of publicity. And, and that is part of the power of building a good community, right?
0: Yeah, there's many things going on there, Earl. I think it's a fantastic example. So one of them is the crew is acknowledging that they see the customers beyond the transaction, right? The transaction is you give me money, we drop you off in the right city, have a good time. And the crew is saying, I see that you're a living human who is taking a risk and you're trusting us in the midst of this risk and by the way we got our money we dropped you off but Mm -hmm. we see you for who you are and we're accepting it and in this case they're acknowledging that that person took the risk acknowledgement is a big part of being part of community you know when you were working with with other Marines and you felt connected my guess Earl and you tell me if I'm right at all is that there were times where in their own way they acknowledge that you are worthy of risking their life uh, next to you Mm mm-hmm Absolutely right, yep. and one of them is they ran forward and were trusting that. Well, you're behind them. You're going to take care of what needed to taken care of, right? Absolutely. They acknowledge that. So one thing that's going is the acknowledgement. The other thing that's going on is they are demonstrating that relationship transcends or goes beyond transaction. They could have said, "Thanks for your money. We really wanted it. Here you are. Get off the plane." They could have done that but they're saying that that relationship is beyond that that there's honor there and that together we're getting through covid by them keeping their jobs and by passengers staying safe and getting where they need to go and if we only think of our businesses in this place with customers as transactional we might get through right i bought shoes earlier this year i didn't want a relationship with the company i just wanted shoes
1: <laughs> right
0: but there are cases where having a relationship that transcends transaction makes an enormous difference And in the case of Delta, you can see, quite frankly, in the time of a handwritten note, acknowledging that it goes beyond the transaction is making an enormous difference. You know, one of my favorite examples is with Patagonia. Uh, They're a company Mm -hmm. that makes gear and people wear it and uh, they they buy the gear and then they have it in their closet and they use it and that could be the end of their relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a group of what they call ambassadors at Patagonia, which Patagonia selects amongst the most elite athletes in the world. And they invest in bringing those athletes to the Patagonia headquarters and hosting them for days at a time, which includes shared meals and meeting executives and giving them time to meet each other. And amongst the things that's going on is these athletes are literally risking their lives on the effectiveness of Patagonia gear. Mm -hmm. When you're climbing an ice shelf in a storm, either that gear is going to keep you dry and warm so you don't die of hypothermia or it's not. Right. And I've talked to some of the founding members of the Patagonia company, and what I love about that company is it did not start with the aspiration to sell as much stuff as possible. It started with the aspiration of making gear safe enough that Yvonne Chouinard's friend wouldn't die if they used it. Right. And he knew that if he made any given piece of equipment poorly, you know, 20% weaker than it needed to be, someone he knew or someone they knew was going to die when it failed. So they bring them together and they invest in that relationship. It's not all Patagonia customers, but it's some of them, right? Elite athletes. Right. And Patagonia then has this relationship with them where they get to learn in deep conversations and over their experience, how do we make this better? How do we make it safer? And the company makes no bones about the fact that they also don't just want to sell stuff and poison this planet for the next generation. They want to make it a better planet for the next generation while they're making this stuff. And that's one reason why, with no benefit to sales, they made all of their cotton products organic cotton. Mm -hmm. And when they did that, there wasn't even enough organic cotton in sale in America for them to do that. So they had to learn how to grow it. They're going beyond the transaction. Maybe not all of their decisions are great, but you'll find a fanatical commitment uh, amongst their customers because they understand the company's their relationship to us, including the next generation, is so much more than sell us gear and tell us to go away.
1: Yeah, well, right, and and, and that is fantastic because I love Patagonia's uh, story as well because you know they they take it a, a, another level there where they make the commitment to uh, the longevity and life of the gear that you you mm-hmm. purchase with their kind of their exchange repair program, and they recycle a good chunk of Patagonia. Uh, Clothing that that's no longer repairable, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, so it's a very yeah. That, that's a great example. I, I love that. I love that. Um, well, Charles, we we're coming up here. Actually, we've been talking probably close to about fifty minutes right now, and it has been a fantastic discussion. I'm really glad that uh, we were able to make this thing work and and uh, and have this. But I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, Uh, I'd like to leave all of my guests with the opportunity if there's anything we didn't get a chance to cover uh, would you like to share anything with the listeners before we close out? So Earl the idea
0: I want to leave I want to leave here is this idea that it's a very very powerful thing when someone who's an elder to us reaches out and expresses concern and uh, the week, and not, not just in one area for I don't just mean by age, Earl. When you were a Marine, there were people who were elder Marines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're obviously a podcaster. They're elder podcasters. In your family, they're elders. Any, anywhere. Every one of us is an elder to someone. So if we think of community as people who care about the welfare of one another, there are people right now in your life that if they have a problem at 3 a.m. and they don't call you, when they need help, that's a problem for you. Am I right, Earl?
1: hmm
0: I'm just wondering, Earl, of those people, how many of them know that if they don't call you when they need help at 3 a.m., that's a problem for you? Mm.
1: That's a good question. It's a very good question. And, um, yeah, probably not nearly enough, to, to be completely right. honest, probably right, not right. nearly enough.
0: And and you're normal, Earl. That's why I bring it up. Right. So one way we can start building community is we can, if community is people who care about one another's welfare, is we can call the people we already care about and let them know, I really care about your success and your health and your well-being and I want you to know that if you have a problem at 3 a.m. or any other time and you can use help and you don't call me, that's a problem for me because you're not allowing me to be the friend I wanna be. And then they're gonna say whatever they say. It might be, Earl, you know, never call me again. I hate people who care about me. I hear people who say that they want to help me, like just forget forget me forever. They might say that. That would shock me, but it might happen. What really happens, and you know this Earl is what they say is of course, uh, I'm delighted that's true, and the same is true for me. So one of the things we can do in this terribly lonely time and very difficult time for the country is we can call people we already care about and let them know we care about them and just see how that conversation unfolds and if what comes out of that is more people around you who know that you care
1: about each other's welfare you're already building more community hmm. i love that i love that now that is a there's very good advice very good guidance and something i know that i'm going to take some actions to correct so like i said that was a very good question thank you for for asking that i really i really appreciate that question it really got me thinking um, and hopefully listeners as well, because I know we all know somebody, especially right now who is, who is struggling with something and, uh, they, they, they need to know that they have a community to support them. So I, I like that closing, uh, that, that closing, uh, thought stream there, Charles, that was, that was outstanding. Um, with that in mind, and hopefully people are, are convinced about the power of, of belonging and community building, Uh, across all of the different uh, dimensions that those words can encompass. If they want to reach out to you, find out how to work with you, uh, find out more about what you're doing, what's a good way uh, for the listeners to reach out to Charles Vogel?
0: So if they want to find more resources, uh, all three of my books are available wherever you buy books. And my name is Charles Vogel, Charles V-O-G-L and you can just look that up wherever you buy books. And then I have a website. It's charlesvogel.com. that's charlesv-o-g-l.com. And on there, you'll find a couple things. One of them, you'll find shorter articles that I write about how we can, as leaders, bring people together. You'll find download worksheets that will help you use the ideas I write about to apply it to whatever group of people you want to invest in bringing together And you'll also find uh, the homepage of my own podcast, which is launching uh, later this year, where we'll talk about the wisdom that helps us mature as we bring people together.
1: Mm, Outstanding. I'll be looking forward to that. Well, again, uh, thank you very, very much for your time and being with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I just, I I feel very blessed by the conversation we just had, and especially that last question. That, That was very impactful. So thank you very much.
0: Well, delighted to be here, Earl. Yeah, absolutely. And
1: listeners, again, the, the title of the book is Building Brand Communities, How Organizations Succeed by Creating Belonging by Charles Vogel and his co-author, Carrie Melissa Jones. I highly recommend picking up a copy. Uh, I think it'll be very valuable to, to add to your bookshelf. And I hope you found this, uh, this discussion as interesting and as valuable as I did. I'll obviously have uh, Charles' contact information in the show notes, so you can just click on that and go straight to it. And uh, for me, you know how to reach out to me, burden.command at gmail.com. Comments, questions, concerns, guest ideas, send them there. Keep rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show and sharing it with uh, the folks you know because you've been very instrumental in keeping this show going and helping spread the message of great guests like Charles. So keep that up. Thank you for spending some time with us, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Today
0: is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on ElectricCast and any platform where you listen to
1: your podcast. Electricast